Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. We finally have a roadmap. But can the government stick to its plan to have most of England leave lockdown by the end of June? I'm Jessica Elgott, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. We're now travelling on a one-way road to freedom. And we can begin safely to restart our lives and do it with confidence. And I want to be frank about exactly what that means and the trade-offs involved. Boris Johnson is optimistic. Setting out the exit schedule on Monday, he outlined the four phases up to June 21st with five weeks between each, emphasising the need to follow the data, not dates. But the Conservatives are split, with some arguing that England should open up quicker. And on the flip side, 40 opposition MPs backed calls by the Labour MP Richard Bergen to adopt a zero-Covid strategy, something Boris Johnson quickly shot down as an impossible task. So has the government got the balance right this time? And now we wait for Chancellor Rishi Sunak to present his budget next week, outlining the next steps forward. As the pandemic continues to widen inequality in the UK society, it's now Sunak's responsibility to try and cater for those previously left behind. But given the £400 deficit looming in the background, how will the Chancellor attempt to balance the books? All that and more in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, a day after setting out that all-important roadmap, Boris Johnson told some schoolchildren that he quit journalism for politics because he felt guilty about abusing or attacking people. A bit harsh from the Prime Minister. To discuss this and everything else, I'm joined by The Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee. Polly, let's start with a rather surprising, maybe not so surprising actually, admission from the Prime Minister when he was trying to explain to a classroom full of children why he got into politics. And he explained that he was trying to put himself in the shoes of people who he'd previously attacked as a journalist. And quite an interesting comment from a man who's often and been criticised for making offensive and critical comments when he was a politician as well. Um, What did you make of his explanation of of journalists as always being abusive? I'm sure he does regret many of the things he said, uh, wrote as a journalist, because he wrote some outrageous things. Uh, So they're a bit embarrassing now. But uh, I'm having been on the receiving end of, of his sharp pen, you know, he called me all the worst elements of the nannying state and various other things. He's abused me from time to time in print. I don't think he means a word of it, though I do think one thing he says is true. I think we journalists should put ourselves in the feet of the people who have to make decisions. It's very easy for us to sit in our crow's nest saying, 
you should do this and you shouldn't do that and you made a mistake there without having any responsibility ourselves for having to make those tough decisions. In that sense, I think he's right, but I very much doubt it actually applies to his state of moral consciousness. Moving on to the the sort of bigger news of the week, we finally got this details of this roadmap, which despite, you know, them saying all the, in the lead up to it that it was all going to be data, not dates, there are dates in it. There, as a you know, no no sooner than dates. How how realistic do you think it will be that the government can stick to the plan they've got this four phase plan? Well, things are going very well at the moment. I mean, the vaccine rollout, although it's slowed down in the last couple of days, has been phenomenally fast and successful. I mean, obviously, it's leaving behind some alarming batches of people in poorer areas amongst the black and ethnic minority community but basically it's spectacular and if it can keep going at that pace then I think this looks realistic uh, and cautious for once you know all of that boosterism and all of that I'm going to set you all free stuff he's learnt having made the mistake twice having come out of lockdown twice too fast I think this time, I feel it's about right. The scientists seem to be saying about right. Labour seems to say it's about right. So we shall see. I mean, it may well have to pull back if there's suddenly a new variant or there's a hitch in the vaccination delivery. But uh, I think it's been quite a success as an announcement. Do you think there's any chance that public opinion could start to shift as the vaccine rollout continues, um, particularly as it starts to move right down to the younger age groups. And people might see other countries maybe unlocking even a bit faster than us when the the vaccine rollout isn't um, going as well as ours. Will will people start to get frustrated? Well, there's not been much sign of it, has there? It's been interesting how cautious the public are and, and on the whole have urged the government to be stricter and have been very angry at people who are breaking rules. There's very little support for, for rule breaking. Uh, I think it is possible that the government is just possible. The government has, in the back of its mind, left itself leeway for Easter in that they've you know, opened things up for six people to meet together in gardens and out together for the week after Easter. And I slightly wonder whether if things are going very well, they might not, with great delight, pull it back one week. But I don't know. On the other hand, maybe they feel that Easter would be so explosive, people treating it like Christmas, that that would be dangerous. But I think they have given themselves a bit of leeway that if things went spectacularly well, they could ease up just a little earlier here and there. Interestingly enough, Johnson's counterpart in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, she only has discussed plans for unlocking until April. What do you think's behind this? Is it, is it, you know, she feels like there's a need for extra caution? Is there something going on about the elections in May and, and her needing to do televised briefing every day? Don't want to sound too cynical. What do you think, Polly? Well, you can never be too cynical when very important elections are coming up. And obviously these elections in Scotland uh, in May are incredibly important if the SNP wins a good majority. I think that she likes to sound more cautious than the English. I think that suits her. You know, Boris Johnson is the reckless one who's not trusted. And although her results have only been, you know, a bit better, but fairly marginally better than the English results, She has far more trust in opinion polls amongst her voters than Boris Johnson does, uh, you know, across Britain as a whole. And I think that's because she has been sterner, more cautious, um, you know, less boosterish about I'm going to open everything up. So people trust her more. 
uh, and it's it's served her well. So I think she's right to be a little more cautious. Schools are going to be opening on the 8th of March in England. They're actually going to be opening in a staggered way a little bit earlier in other parts of the country. But there are big concerns with teaching unions, aren't there, about what that could do to a spike in COVID cases. But there's also clearly some some concern for the mental health of children, especially with the stopping and starting. And there is going to be, uh, we hear this morning, some some extra funding, not a, not a great deal of funding, summer schools and for extra catch-up plans that schools can use as and how they like. How do you think this is all going to play out for Gavin Williamson in the long term, especially if we start to see serious gaps emerge in how children have been looked after, been treated by the education system during this lockdown? Parents and children absolutely desperate to get back to school. Life has been really hard under lockdown. Zoom classes, I mean, anybody who spends long on Zoom, for children to spend all day long on Zoom is just appalling. It is bad for them in every way. I mean, for all children, let alone children who have, you know, very little Wi-Fi connection, trying to do it on their mum's phones and things like that. It's been handled atrociously. The idea that every child was going to be given a laptop and Wi-Fi connection, the idea that after, you know, a year later, nearly, they still haven't all got them is quite shocking. Uh, 400 million goes nowhere in terms of repairing the gap in attainment levels between poorer children and better off children, children with uh, every kind of facility at home and children with none. Let's move on to talking a little bit more about vaccines this week. And one of the things under consideration which could become a real hot topic very quickly is this review into COVID certification and uh, this consideration into transforming the NHS app. I think we understand it's not going to be the Test and Trace app. It's the other NHS booking app that exists, uh, which I suspect not many of us have. But that will show whether you've had the COVID vaccine and, and the government also want to include let people have the option of having a, a negative test rather than just the vaccine and to try and swerve any row on that front. The government said time and time and time again, it's not in favour of this. Now it seems to be talking about not just using this for mass events, but for using it literally to go to the pub. Um, is it just the case of them in, embracing the inevitable because this is what businesses are going to want to do? I think it is. I think the travel industry is going to, to want it because a lot of countries will demand it. And since there's likely to be a, an explosion of people travelling abroad on holiday, they will find they need it and they need it in a hurry. So I think the government's right to set up a system uh, that it can use and quite right to use the NHS app because the NHS seems infinitely better at contacting people, keeping in touch with people than the Test and Trace app, which is, you know, privately organised and has never worked very well. Whereas the NHS app, which is in touch with all of those people who are especially vulnerable, for instance, has worked really efficiently. And as a booking system for people's uh, people being called for vaccination, it's worked really well. So uh, I think the mechanism is there. The other big story that we shouldn't move over, Polly, is this this finding against Matt Hancock that he was acting unlawfully by failing to publish these multi-billion pound contracts within that 30-day period. And he, you know, Matt Hancock is, is very, very defensive about it, saying, you know, he's never going to apologise for, for acting quickly to try and uh, obtain PPE. But then he says, actually, there was never a shortage of PPE uh, when... We reported and, and many other places reported how many times there were doctors, nurses, care home workers begging 
for PPE. Why has he picked this fight, and especially on the back of quite an embarrassing ruling? The ruling is really important. The wonderful Good Law Project, crowdfunded, not-for-profit, bought this case because there doesn't seem to be anybody else. We've only really discovered this recently. Who can hold a rogue government to account? But taking them to court seems to be the only way. And Matt Hancock is pretending that there was never any problem with PPE, which is preposterous because we were reporting on people using bin bags. And I think what's so extraordinary about this cabinet is their willingness to say things out loud that every listener and viewer knows isn't true. I find that very baffling. As for his you know, not apologising, he must now publish all of the names of all of the companies that were given this special access. There were 500 of them given special VIP fast lane access to these contracts. They were 10 times more likely to get contracts than the 15,000 other companies who applied, most of whom may have had experience in the field. He should publish the names of all of the VIPs sponsored them and put their names forward. He refuses to do that. It's almost a week ago now. It seems like almost a lifetime in UK politics. But just to finish up, what did you make of Starmer's speech last week? Bill has this chance to kind of set out a fresh vision for the Labour Party. Is that is Did that make any impact, do you think? I think in a way, it's a bit like King Canute proving that he couldn't hold the waves back. Starmer always knew that this was not the time when amazing, great uh, policy initiatives from Labour were going to cut through. People are obsessed, quite rightly, because it affects every aspect of their lives and their relationships with the progress of the pandemic. There really isn't much point in laying out a manifesto, you know, years before there may be an election, and luckily, he put forward some a couple of quite sensible ideas, the idea of building back better bonds and things of that sort. But it would be a waste to put forward some tremendous new prospectus at this moment. Wait until the pandemic's over. Wait until uh, the building back time really comes. Then Labour comes into its own, because we know perfectly well that this Chancellor, as we shall see in the budget, is going to be very keen to start pulling back again. We're going to be back into austerity, and all of that Northern powerhouse and build back better and levelling up stuff won't be there. And that's Labour's moment when they produce their own better plans. After the break, we look ahead to next week's budget and the man tasked with presenting it. We'll be right back. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Steering away from the roadmap, I thought I'd look ahead to next week and get to know more about the man behind the budget, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak. Graduating from Oxford and Stanford University, Sunak worked in investment banking before becoming an MP in 2015. He quickly made friends, supporting Theresa May's Brexit before backing Boris Johnson as Conservative leader. And he took over from Sajid Javid after his dramatic sacking in February 2020. And he had to get to work quickly, presenting his first budget the following month. But little did he know what he would be facing in his first year as Chancellor. So, a year into the job, how has he done? And as his popularity rating remains high, some are wondering if he has his eye on number 10. Who better to ask than The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott, and Katie Balls, the deputy political editor of The Spectator. Katie, I'll start with you. Rishi Sunak recently put up a photo of himself as a child outside the door um, of his house and he was you know, wearing school uniform and he was comparing himself himself now outside the door of number 11. What do you think he's trying to project there? What's, what's the image that he wants people to see of him? I think he was trying to suggest that he's been on a journey, as an American might say, and ultimately the past year particularly, um, but there was quite quickly quite a lot of kickback, particularly in certain parts of the left, at the idea that perhaps um, someone who went to a prestigious private school and then became chancellor wouldn't be such a shock plot or storyline. However, I think that the image that Rishi Sunak wants to project and those around him feel the need to push is that he worked very hard. He came from a middle class family and he worked his way up and he has got here through uh, sheer hard work along with probably a, a bit of luck. And I think going ahead in terms of this budget, what the Treasury want to do and those around Sunak is to say that he is on people's side. So I think anything they can do to say, look, Rishi Sunak is like you, um, is, is seen as quite helpful. Barry, when Rishi Sunak was a little boy and dreamed of becoming the Chancellor, he probably didn't expect it to go the way that it has because it's so often been against his political instincts, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the last year has seen, I think, 15 significant fiscal events. You know, normally there's one or two a year of budget and a, and a pre-budget report. This This year has been just relentlessly supporting the economy and... Without that support, the, the recession that we've had would have been significantly worse. But Sunak is not is not a natural interventionist. But there's been no alternative to it. If the government decides it wants to shut down large parts of the economy on health grounds, then it's incumbent upon the government to provide support for those bits of the economy that shut down. And Sunak realizes that, and so do all the right of centre, the the liberal think tanks like the. Adam Smith Institute and the Institute of Economic Affairs, you, you wouldn't find anybody there really seriously opposing what Sunak's done. I mean, the test for him is going to be when the economy starts to recover. Then you might see something of the authentic Sunak, I think. The government seems to have a bit of a one-two punch strategy, I guess you could describe it as the plan for lifting the lockdown on Monday and then and then having the budget on the, on the 3rd of March. And Katie, what do you think the lessons have been learned in the past year about how Sunak presents himself when he's conveying the government's message to the public. That there hasn't really been a lot of talk in, since the, the roadmap was published about how yet more this will cost. We seem to be spending billions and billions and the public getting used to spending billions and billions and it just is barely remarked upon. So I think we're going to hear from Rishi Sunak with this budget about the costs so far, about what it has taken 
fooled the Treasury, fooled the government to offer these support relief schemes and how there is something which uh, the country as a whole is going to have to reckon with. And I think there are many in the Tory party and we see it in op-eds every Sunday who do not think this is necessarily the time for that conversation, let alone the time to start talking about tax rises to deal with it. But I think the Chancellor is in a different place. So even though we have heard little, as you say, uh, probably perhaps more recently, I think that's going to change quite soon. And I think that what Rishi Sunak wants to do is if you look at his uh, initial press conferences back early on in the pandemic, the Chancellor was widely praised for having a more, I suppose, community-minded way with language. Lots of people said, oh, if only Boris Johnson could talk like that about the duty we have to our neighbours, to one another. And I think that what uh, the Chancellor wants to do is return to that uh, type of language to say, well, we now have to find a way out of this. Now, I think that's a more difficult sell because the way out of it is going to be something that affects lots of people in terms of, uh, you know, how much is in their pocket and businesses as they try and come out of the recovery. But I think it's very much something that is on the Chancellor's mind, especially now the roadmap is out, because I think the other thing that's been quite interesting in the past few months is Rishi Sunak has often been written up as a cabinet hawk. I've done it, uh, where he's somebody who's been pushing for restrictions to be eased more quickly. But he almost kind of removed himself from that situation, I think, after the the pandemic got worse and tried to stay out of that debate. I think now the roadmap is set. Um, We're going to hear the Chancellor talking more about recovery and the cost. I would agree with that. I think that Sunak has played it quite carefully over the last few months and now is in a position where he can say, well, look, I sat at the Treasury I didn't kick up a fuss when the third lockdown was imposed. I didn't kick up a fuss when the scientists laid out their plan for the unlocking of the economy. I went along with five-week intervals between various stages. But if the scientists then come back and say, actually, we want things a bit tougher, then you will see Sunak uh, show his teeth and say, look, what is your end game here? I did it your way. And now that hasn't worked either. So we now have to do it my way, which is that the economy needs to stay open uh, and there will be no fourth lockdown. So I think I think he's actually played his hand quite cautiously, but quite carefully and quite cannily because he's now in a very strong position to resist any further pressure to lock the economy down for a fourth time. Do you think that's? Do you agree, Katie? Do you think that's what he'll what we'll see is that you know he's 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 been pretty absent, hasn't he, in the in the debate in. The run up to this roadmap, he's not particularly, he's, you know, maybe deliberately hasn't done any press conferences. We haven't seen much of him at all. Do you think that will change if the roadmap starts to slip? Yes, I definitely agree in the sense I think there has been an active decision uh, for Rishi Sunak to not get particularly involved in this debate. I don't think it's a huge coincidence that in lots of the COVID O meetings, it's been uh, the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Steve Barkley, attending in recent months rather than Rishi Sunak. I think that he's gone along in terms of this pace, which is one which is much slower than many Tory MPs would like. But if there were to be a fourth lockdown or he were to push it past late June, I think he would start to see a kickback. I do think ministers, however, are quite happy with the idea that Tory MPs do most of the heavy lifting for them on this. And there is a sense that because the parliamentary party would be so unhappy, perhaps ministers wouldn't have to get involved. They could keep their powder dry. But yes, I, I do think Rishi Sunak would, would want to make sure that the stage four schedule was kept on target. Boris Johnson doesn't really ever let the word austerity cross his lips, or apart from in a negative sense, and he seems very determined for this to be a parliament of spending, Larry, despite the economic position. Do you think that's setting him up for a clash with Sunak further down the road? Well, it certainly 
could do. It depends on what Sunak's plans for the recovery are. I mean, if things go well, then most of the deficit that the government has built up will wash out of the system, leaving, you know, the government will borrow something like 350, 370 billion pounds this year. But next year, it will be much, much less if the economy starts to recover. So it could well be that the amount of tightening that the Chancellor has to do is relatively small. And that's why it's kind of important that he carries on supporting the economy over the next two or three months, because the more scarring there is, the more unemployment there is, the more businesses that go bust, the worse the long-term financial position for the government's going to be. So it's possible that if the budget deficit doesn't come down as quickly as, as the Bank of England and the Treasury think it will, that there will be the need for some quite severe tightening of policy. But I think that as things stand, that will be more on the tax side than on the spending side. I think Boris Johnson himself has publicly distanced himself from austerity from the Cameron Osborne era. So it'd be very difficult, and particularly looking at the election campaign, to go to anything like that. However, I do think we could see uh, tensions between Sunak and Johnson in the future, because ultimately Rishi Sunak has been very clear that he is concerned about this idea of uh, you know relying on low interest rates indefinitely. He's concerned about them even going up slightly, and therefore I. Think you're going to see the chance to push for various measures. Remember, we got some uh, last fiscal event in terms of reducing foreign aid. That's still to go through the Commons. And I think all these things create a backlash from the Tory party. And what do we know about the Prime Minister? He doesn't like upsetting people. He wants to be loved. And he's not particularly good at difficult decisions. He can make them and he has to. But I think in terms of the recovery, where Rishi Sunak is, is that he is not someone who does think you can just rely on, uh, you know, borrowing more indefinitely, um, even though I think that has become a more popular viewpoint in the Tory party in recent years. Larry, you've been predicting um, fall in popularity and general popularity for Sunak. What do you think it, it will take for the public to start to question his methods when they come around? Because things like you know, that we might see in this budget, which might include, I, I suppose, some rising corporation tax, that's probably not going to affect massively public opinion. So, so what do you think it'll take? Well, I think he'll become less popular when he stops writing cheques. That's the reality. I mean, it's very easy to be a popular chancellor when you're giving away lots of free money, which is what he's been doing over the last 12 months. I mean, he's been keeping people on furlough on 80% of their wages. He's been giving businesses business rates holiday, VAT holidays. It's very easy to be a popular chancellor when you're doing all that sort of stuff, when you're giving money away. Chancellors don't tend to be that popular when they start taking the money away from people. And so that process, one would have thought, is going to start happening, probably not right now, certainly not for ordinary people, ordinary voters, but at some point over the next 12 months. And then you'll see a fall in Sunak's popularity, I would have thought. I also think that there is an argument that perhaps Rishi Sunak could survive some of this in terms of his popularity could stay quite high. I think what's interesting is Paul's view of Rishi Sunak is that he has done something which few politicians do, uh, which is 
he has a values judgments amongst voters where lots of them do think he is on their side. Now, you can link that to the checkbook, but I think people say it is more now people have an idea of who he is as a person. So it's a bit harder to then get someone to completely change how they see someone. Obviously, you can have moments, also certain taxes, which do change uh, the perspective. But I think it is interesting how Labour have spent so long already trying to land blows on the Chancellor. A lot of attack stuff coming from Labour whether it's on the fact that Annalise Dodds, the shadow chancellor, is very keen to say he's made the worst decisions in terms of the economy, why we have a very, uh, we rank very badly in terms of where we are in our economic response. And then you also have um, them trying to land blows on the coronavirus strategy. I've had you know figures in Labour say to me, no other minister has given us more attack lines for the next election than Rishi Sunak pointing out, you know, various schemes. They cite ETET to help out, for example. Yet it could be that this is all building up and it's, you know, at some point going to go and we are going to see that dent. But so far, I do think there is a frustration from those same same people that they say all these things, but it just doesn't seem to tally the perception that lots of people have of the Chancellor. What do you think the future holds for Rishi Sunak, Larry? Will he still be in the same job by the next election? Is he he looking for for a bigger job? Well, there's only one bigger job than being Chancellor, and that's being Prime Minister. So it's not a great idea for Chancellors and Prime Ministers to fall out historically. I mean, the successful governments tend to be ones where the Chancellor and the Prime Minister get on together. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher was famously fell out with Nigel Lawson and, and, and fell shortly afterwards. It's not a great idea. But I mean, at the moment, I don't think there's going to be there's too much between Sunak and, and Johnson. I think that the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have pretty much agreed on the strategy. The, the Chancellor has, has kept quiet about the third lockdown, he's kept quiet about the recovery strategy. Um, he will do what he can in the in this mini budget to, to see the economy through. So at the moment, I think the tensions are probably not particularly strong and, and, and certainly manageable. The, the problem would be if the Chancellor in a year's time came along and said, you know what, we need to abandon the triple lock because we need to raise taxes, we need to raise income tax or national insurance, or um, I want to abolish the triple lock on pensions. Those sort of things would be quite difficult, I think, for the Prime Minister to swallow. But I don't think we're anywhere near that position yet. I think what is going to be difficult for Rishi Sunak is at the moment he is very popular with the parliamentary party. They ultimately are probably a little bit less popular than when he first started, but still very popular. And I think that they see in him a true blue, um, whereas the public almost see him as not a true blue. So he has actually quite a good formula for um, winning for a Tory leadership contest where the parliamentary party think he's one of them. And I think uh, outside voters uh, see him as a bit different. So you can see him bringing a, a real coalition of voters Mary Ellen and Katie Balls, thank you ever so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. Now, as we talked about in the first half of the show, the UK government has announced the road to exiting lockdown. However, as Labour leader Keir Starmer pointed out, there was very little mentioned about the economic support to go with it. But next Wednesday, the Chancellor will make his way to the House of Commons with a red box containing the government's plans to keep the UK economy afloat. Rishi Sunak is worried about additional borrowing forced on the government due to the pandemic, as the public struggles to get by after a decade of austerity measures failed to prepare them for an economic crisis like this one. So what should Sunak take from previous budgets presented by his predecessors? Earlier in the week, The Guardian's economic correspondent Richard Partington spoke to Charlotte Aldrit, director of the Centre for Progressive Policy. 
Thank you for joining me, Charlotte. It's excellent to talk to you today. Um, just setting out in the broadest possible terms, what do you think are the big challenges we have in the forthcoming budget? I mean, we obviously have huge challenges from a, the coronavirus pandemic, but there are areas that the government will also be seeking to address. So just to hear from you in the first instance, how things are looking uh, as we head to this budget? Yeah, so I think there are, there are two main challenges. So one is the government will be determined to come back to its levelling up agenda, and, and rightfully so. But it's doing so in a context in which the public finances are deteriorating. So there's been much talk in recent months as to whether the Chancellor will use this as an opportunity to start raising taxes, or at least to kind of plant the seed that that might be coming down the track, particularly as there's a strong anti-austerity sentiment across the, the political spectrum. So those are the two main challenges. How does he square the circle of needing to increase investment to tackle not just the immediate impact of COVID, but long-standing uh, place-based inequalities across the country at a time when the public finances are deteriorating? Entering into the pandemic, we had the levelling up agenda uh, and that focused on geography, but there was also different communities and groups that were, were struggling. And now the pandemic has hit as well. I mean, who are the people that the Chancellor will really need to talk to and, uh, and to help? Yeah, well, I think here's where you'll see, you know, kind of intersectionality, as it were. So ethnic minority communities that have been particularly affected through the pandemic, in large part because their key, key workers, say, earning relatively lower wages than affluent white um, middle class professionals in London and the southeast. You know, geography and the kind of demographic social characteristics are much more kind of interwoven. And, it, you know, the chance they'll be wanting to demonstrate sensitivity to that. But I think his best way of uh, approaching that is to really think about what he needs to do to invest in communities that have, as you say, been typically left behind. Because we've got to remember that the, the 10 years of austerity over the last decade, you know, community spending was cut by up to 60% in local authorities. And that means that many communities that were reliant on services such as youth services, um, community centres, recreation and sport, and the idea of kind of parks and green spaces has been really been brought to the to the fore, and the inequalities around access to high quality housing and, and and the rest. You know, those services have been have been particularly cut, and and local uh, government budgets bore the brunt of public sector cuts over the last ten years, <laughs> coupled with the fact that places in the north and the midlands that are and have experienced kind of largest wealth inequalities. They too saw the hardest um, cuts from an austerity perspective. So the Chancellor's got a lot of work to catch up and to start to kind of fill in those gaps. Um, and if he doesn't do that, I think it will, on from a political perspective, um, really undermine the government's you know, election winning slogan around the need to, to level up. I think it will disappoint many of the kind of ardent Brexiteers who saw um, leaving the European Union as a, as a way to tackle some of those problems. But economically, it will further undermine the strength of UK 
PLC. And one thing that we've looked at at the pandemic as well is that it's really affected urban centres and cities, um, particularly London and the southeast around airports or uh, perhaps poorer suburbs of the capital that are dependent on uh, jobs in the city centre where it's kind of become a ghost town. Has COVID-19 exacerbated these these problems that we face? So we have the levelling up issues, but it's also slightly flipped on its head with the, the problems in London. Yeah, I think what the pandemic has shown is that levelling up isn't about London versus the rest. So I've talked a lot about trends in the North and the Midlands, these red wall seats or former red wall areas that exhibited high levels of inequality. But those same levels of inequality actually can be found in pockets of London and the South East, particularly, say, in coastal towns. And as you say, places that are um, experiencing significant um, impact from the shutdown of the economy um, are in places that might otherwise have been thriving and, and actually um, resilient to that level of and, and nature of economic shock. So I hope that it will reinforce with the Chancellor that levelling up isn't just about kind of increasing capital spend in Manchester and Leeds and Newcastle, for example. It has to be a more systemic approach to thinking about creating an inclusive economy where it enables as many people as possible to contribute and benefit from the economy wherever they may be. And that will apply as much to people in the borough of Barking Dagenham as it will you know, elsewhere. Because we've been here before, really, haven't we, in that there has been multiple attempts to to level up the country or to give it another badge, things such as the, the Northern Powerhouse. This has been going on for years, but without too much success, unfortunately. But what are the types of policies and areas for spending that the Chancellor should focus on this time? Yeah, we have really failed to tackle regional inequalities, despite various efforts. I think that's partly because some of those efforts haven't been allowed to go far enough. And that, I, in that respect, I point to devolution and the role of combined authorities and mayors in understanding their place and working across different public and private sector institutions to, to allow their place to grow and thrive in an inclusive way. I think other things have also um, been off the agenda entirely. And, and one of the things I've really encouraged the Chancellor in this budget is to recognise the extent to which investment in social policy and that community spending in our public services, both sort of capital, i.e. sort of buildings and the kind of hard infrastructure, but also the resource spend. So the amount that it's just putting into, say, the health service or the education frontline, that that is really protected and, and increased because the extent to which uh, the health and educational inequalities undermine the economics are such that we really need to increase investment in that social infrastructure rather than rely on, you know, the traditional, well, if we just put some more money in transport or we create a few free ports here and there or we chuck some money at R&D that we'll be able to create an economy that will work for everyone. History, as you said, has shown time and again that we don't close those regional inequalities if we just focus on that physical infrastructure. We need to focus on the social infrastructure, and that means public services. It's not so much about roads, trains and planes and motorways and uh, high-speed rail, but also the individuals at the heart of the communities that need 
greater support. Um, one, one of the key things that we're, we're heading into at this moment in time in terms of uh, support for individuals is universal credit. I mean, there are dire forecasts for rising unemployment because of the pandemic. Uh, and there are certain communities where that is hitting hardest. At this moment in time, the, the government has increased the amount uh, that claimants of universal credit can receive by £20 per week as an emergency measure. There's been a lot of speculation about whether that will be cut at this budget. Uh, is it important that this support is maintained and continued as we continue through this year? In summary, yes. And I think it has to continue for at least as long as the furlough scheme or or versions of that remain in place. There was a case for increasing the generosity of universal credit, regardless of the pandemic. Then we went into the worst recession in 300 years and people who were already vulnerable and potentially were going to struggle to, to move quickly into new employment were then, as you say, Um, hit by this economic shock. So cushioning that, as well as in in terms of giving them access to other practical skills and employment support has got to be part of the government's approach to to thinking about welfare and universal credit going forward. And I think it it sort of slightly got it sort of found itself out really, because it, it became the ultimate backstop um, as people that weren't eligible for the more generous furlough schemes were, were put onto UC and government really celebrated that. So I think it's going to find itself in difficult terrain if it tries to row back on that now and kind of package universal credit in a kind of traditional conservative, you know, skivers and scroungers bucket rather than thinking it, about it as a, a really valuable source of, of social support. It's a big agenda. Thank you for joining us at Charlotte Aldrich. It's fantastic to talk to you. Thanks very much. And that's all from us this week. Next Wednesday is Budget Day and Heather Stewart will be joined by The Observer's Philip Inman to discuss the main takeaways from Sunak's economic plan. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Jonathan Frieden will talk to Evan McMullen, a former CIA agent and a Republican Capitol Hill policy advisor who ran as an independent in 2016 in the hopes of beating Donald Trump and the pair discuss McMullen's plans for a rival Conservative Party. So look out for that in the same feed you found us. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Polly Toynbee, Richard Partington, Charlotte Aldrit, Larry Elliott and Katie Balls. The producer is Amy Leibovitz. I'm Jessica Elgott. Please look after yourselves and thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. 
<clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 